The following episode of the Because Maybe podcast is rated explicit. Please be advised that the content matter is aimed at mature audiences. If your age determines that you must attend mandatory education daily, or if you find course language offensive, you are strongly advised to not listen to this podcast. By continuing to listen, you are choosing to ignore this warning. You release the Because Maybe podcast team of any and all responsibility. The following episode also deals with a subject matter which, while fictional, may be difficult for people to listen to, as it depicts drug use, sexual exploitation, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Hey guys, and welcome to the Because Maybe podcast, the podcast that takes a look at all things 90s and answers some of the most important questions of the decade. Because maybe, we all chose life. I'm your host, John Connolly. Thank you for whoever you are, wherever you are, for taking the time out of your day to listen to this podcast. We have a great show for you this week. We go through our first book review. Uh, we look at Trainspotting by Irvin Welsh. I have an update on the Movember and the Man Up thing that's been going around the last couple of days. And we look at a product that is still on the market today. If you guys are on social media, if you're on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr, look at Because Maybe Pod. Uh, give us a like, a share, subscribe to it. That way we can grow our audience. You know, we're, we're always looking to increase our audience and, you know, just be bigger than what we are. And the quickest way you can do that is just take two seconds out of your day, give us a like. Um, I've started posting this on my own personal social media page as well, just to, you know, gain some extra support, if you will. Um, we also have a YouTube channel. Uh, we don't have a special URL or anything like that, but if you look up uh, Because Maybe Podcast on YouTube, you will find our videos. We have uh, certain extras, a uh, couple of incidental videos, uh, samples from regular podcasts, and in the next couple of weeks we might be adding things like Let's Plays and stuff like that when we come to talk about the video games that we're going to review. Uh, I want to talk about uh, the video that I posted last Wednesday, or last Thursday, I can't remember which day it was, it was one of the days. Um, we had some decent response from that, and I want to thank everybody who took the time to listen to it. It was a very, very hard video for me to uh, speak up about, and it's not something that I'm going to hide away from too. Uh, you know, the last couple of days things have gotten a little bit better for me, but at the same time there's still just something quite not right. Um, one of the things I want to do is that I want to get more responses like that. I want people to understand that this is not just, you know, me ranting and raving, me complaining. You know, it is okay to be a leader. It is okay to be, you know, this strong, tough guy. But at the end of the day, it's also okay to tell people when you're not feeling good. You know, it's it's okay to tell people when you're not feeling right. And, you know, that's what I want to do. I want to take back the phrase man up. And, you know, for me, I have to man up. And by manning up, I mean looking at myself and realizing that things are not right. And so that's one of the things that I wanted to do. I've seen other guys post recently um, their own man-up videos, and, you know, that's that's heartwarming to see that this, this is a conversation that's starting to be had. Um, right now we need more people doing that, and, you know, there are a lot of things, a lot of misconceptions, and as guys we need to, you know, we need to rise above them, and we need to stop thinking that, you know, the voices in our head are correct, and we need to stop thinking that, you know, it's okay to, to feel sad, because it's not. It's okay to be unokay. We just now have to look after ourselves. We now have to take care of it. And because of that, uh, I am in the process of still growing the official hair for November. Uh, we do have Charity Drive going on. The link is in the description of the podcast. And anybody who can grow facial hair, please do. If you can't, don't worry about it. Just donate to the cause. And we can 
do things that affect men's health, like uh, mental illness and testicular and prostate cancer. I myself have got a magnificent, magnificent caterpillar growing on my lip. Uh, as my uncle would say, it looks like a third eyebrow coming down for a glass of water. But, um, yeah, that's what we've got. So it's a very, very short opening segment this week, guys, because I've got a lot to talk about. Uh, book reviews are very, very in-depth. Uh, but this book review is not for the faint-hearted. Now, we put a disclaimer at the top of the show, and again, I would like to reiterate, this book is transporting. It deals with a lot, and I mean a lot of things that are not safe for work, so don't listen to this around your boss. And if you listen to this around your children, uh, again, do not listen to this podcast around your children. If you are offended easily by bad words, bad language, don't continue forward. Just skip through to the end, skip through to the uh, to the advertisement that we've got later on, if you must, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to lay it out there right now. I have not censored any words. I have not sent because if I censored words, that sound like R two D two for a start. Uh, but also the themes of the novel as well are not comfortable. So again, heed the disclaimer at the beginning of the podcast. If that is something you would feel uncomfortable for, don't worry about it. You're not going to get complaints from me. I knew this going in with this subject, but please like and share the podcast, like and share the page, and so on and so forth. But yeah, this one may not be for you. And if it's not for you, please don't listen to it and then go. Well, well, this was harder than I thought of it. No, this is gonna be this is gonna be a tough, tough, t- tough listen to if you know you don't like cuss words and you don't like uh, adult adult themes. So, like I said, no ch- Please make sure your children don't listen to this. And if you were squeamish at certain things, don't listen to it yourself. For the rest of us, we're gonna be talking about one of the greatest books of all time. We're gonna be talking about Train Spotting. Review Corner, the written word. This week on Review Corner, we have something that's a little different. Now, normally all of the content that we do is designed for anybody to listen to whenever, but as we've mentioned at the very, very top of the podcast, this part of the show is the reason why we've gone explicit this week. Uh, we talk about one of the most controversial books ever written, uh, one of the greatest books ever written, a book that doesn't glamorize, but basically tells it like it is with certain things that were going on in the mid to late 80s in Edinburgh. And it's called Trainspotting. A lot of people don't realize that this was a book first, then a movie, but I can tell you right now, guys, this book is fantastic. Uh, Trainspotting was written by Irvin Welsh. Uh, it was published by Secker and Wahlberg, which is now a Random House. Um, the genre is very, very realistic and gritty, but it's also based up into a series of short stories. So very, very few of the chapters kind of run together for a linear plot, which is important, which we'll get to here in a little while. And, of course, being the 90s podcast, it was released in 1993. Uh, it spawned a movie, it spawned a stage show, and it basically launched Irvin Welsh into the stratosphere as a damn good author. He is really, really good. Um, he's, he's written a lot more books in a similar style, in this kind of grimy, sleazy, dark, but... Dark, but realistic, I think. You know, he's not just... He, he doesn't talk about corruption in his books just to talk about corruption. He talks about corruption and then explains why people are corrupt. And we'll get to a lot of that here later on. But this book, when it was released, caught it a lot of controversy, a lot of... A lot of people refused to uh, even acknowledge it when it came to reviewing it. Uh, I'm not talking about like reviews that I am now looking back. I'm talking about proper book reviewers, you know, people who, you know, book reviews, New York Times bestseller list type deal. You know, they would refuse to acknowledge it because of the fact that the subject matter was very, very gritty and realistic and in your face. 
And that only led to notoriety for the book. You know, the more you bend something in terms of literature and in terms of art, the more it gets out there. I mean, one of the uh, biggest examples of that would be A Clockwork Orange. You know, um, Kubrick pulled the film in the UK and lots of people saw it because they got bootlegs of it. So, you know, it was the same thing here, but the, the book wasn't banned, but it was the whole thing of... It's anti-establishment. Hey, let's go have a look at it. Let's go have a look at it. Uh, the book is split up into seven sections, which are told in first person by one of the characters or in third person. Uh, there's very, very few uh, chapters that are done in a traditional narrator style, but um, it's usually it's usually one of the main characters. Um, there's no linear plot, and the chapters can be read separately at little t- you know different times so you could pick the book up go halfway through it and start reading and you won't necessarily have missed anything although it is advised that if you do read the book read the whole thing that way you get the full experience because while there isn't a plot while there isn't a, an a to b goal there is character growth and contraction during the course of the novel there are no backstories to any of the characters at the beginning of the book and even during the book there's very little backstory explained um you basically jump straight in with two feet to these guys in the middle of their addictions which i think is great i mean it, it, it doesn't give you an opportunity to root for anyone at that point you know you just see people as they are right now it doesn't matter what they've done or how they've done this is how we are this is where we're going uh, each section is based at a different point, basically, in Renton's life, the main character. Uh, we deal with sobriety, exile in London, relapse to drug addiction, uh, returning home, and completely leaving the country. Spoiler alert, I know if you haven't read it, uh, there are going to be spoilers in here, but at the same time, I can't review it without revealing some of the spoiled information. There are also some sections in the book that are told by Renton's stream of consciousness. So you have the regular chapters, and then you have chapters called Drug Problems Number X, right? Uh, X is a different number. And it's basically his stream of consciousness when he takes a shot of heroin, or when he's about to take a shot of heroin, and, you know, just, just stuff that... Stuff that is going through his mind, and why, as an addict, he feels the need to keep going, aside from just addiction. Because a lot of the things in this book talk about how the high of the drug, never mind just the addiction. So, we'll get to that here in a little while. It's written in three different styles of writing. It's uh, written in phonetic Edinburgh dialect. So, you know, instead of saying I'm, it will say I'm, A-H-M, you know, so you kind of ha- read it with a Scottish accent. Uh, I know that that's probably sacrilege to say something like that, but I mean, that's that's the best way I can describe it. So, you know, I, te- I tell him, it means I told him, you know, and once you, once you kind of, I don't want to say decipher, once you kind of figure out what words they mean and reread it, it does get easier, and as the time goes along, you know exactly what he's trying to say. I think it adds to the authenticity of the characters, myself, you know, rather than just trying to write in proper English with these guys with, you know, dialects and slang, writing them in proper English, I mean, you know, I think it's really, really good. He doesn't do it just with the Edinburgh dialect, there are a couple of uh, London characters that he does it with too, which I think is, you know, is consistent and great. I think it's fantastic. You know, it's it just keeps everything going and doesn't break you from, you know, from the novel. Uh, it also does write uh, in the chapters that do have a third-person narrator. It does write in uh, Scots English. So you know, the, the, it does use dialect, but it is more traditional English as opposed to the Edinburgh dialect. And then there are some segments that have a combination of the both of them. So it'll have you know. The narration will be in the Scots English, 
whereas the dialogue will be in the phonetic Edinburgh. Several of these stories were written and published in other magazines and other, you know, in other areas before this book came out. A lot of them, uh, some of the some of the big chapters in this book too. Um, the author Irvin Welsh spent a lot of time in London in the late seventies during the punk scene, and a lot of Renton's life and experience seems to parallel uh, Welsh's. You know, so uh, Renton exiled to London, so did Welsh. He came back to Scotland, so did Welsh. You know. Um, I haven't read too much of, of Irvin Welsh's biography. What I have found, you know, I, I don't want to say that he completely is Renton, but I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of parallels between the two, between the real life author and our antihero. The novel does take place after 1984. Uh, the reason I know that for a fact, and any Irvin Welsh fan should know that for a fact, is in uh, one of the chapters in the book. I think it's the uh, house arrest chapter. Uh, where Renton's going through his withdrawal, uh, it mentions that his brother died the year before. And in the book The Skag Boys, that takes place in 1984, or starts in 1984. So it takes place after 1984, but definitely before 1988. Uh, a couple of other telltale signs, there's uh, Graham Sunas is the manager of Rangers FC, is mentioned in this book, and Margaret Thatcher is still in power. So it's, it is kind of that mid to late 80s uh, of what's going on. And like I said, the prequel, The Skag Boys, uh, which I haven't read, which I've, I've, I've tried to read. I've read the sequel. I've read uh, T2, as it's now known. Uh, it was originally called Porno. Um, I read that. I think it's a fantastic novel. Uh, Skag Boys, I still haven't read yet. So let's dive in and have a look at who the characters are. And there's a reason I'm, I'm doing this. Because there is no plot, it is very, very character-driven. So, you know, looking at the characters gives an insight into how good or bad this movie is. And they all have similar traits, and they all have different traits, and you'll see why here in a second. We start with Mark Renton, who is the main character of the novel. He is a heroin addict and later cleans up his life. He is a highly, highly intelligent man. Uh, he's a former university student and apprentice carpenter. He kind of acts as the voice of reason and morality for the rest of the group. You have Simon Sickboy Williamson, who's also a main character and also, like Renton, is his best friend, heroin addict, and later clean. He's possibly sociopathic, and he is definitely highly selfish. Uh, he develops into a petty criminal and a pimp. He's obsessed with Sean Connery, and that manifests itself in a way where he will kind of try and justify something and then ask Sean, who will agree, and, you know, carry on as, as, you know, as if it was his decision all along. He's also the father of Baby Dawn, too, which one of the hardest parts of the novel is the death of Baby Dawn. Uh, then you have Danny Spud Murphy. Uh, he's also a main character. He is a heroin and a drug addict. Not just heroin. He, you know, he does bounce around with a lot of other drugs. He is a petty thief, and he's usually the butt of all the jokes. But he is naive and childlike. But he has a pure heart, you know. But he's also one of these characters who everybody looks down their nose at, regardless of whether he's high or whether he's completely utterly sober. Uh, you then have Francis Begbie, aka Begbie. Uh, he's the, he's a main character too. He doesn't necessarily have any addictions, but he is a borderline alcoholic. He is a genuine psychopath who carries like knives and sticks and knitted needles. He, you know, he terrorizes his friends. He terrorizes anyone who's different. And he thinks that addicts are the lowest of the low, even though he hangs out with them and considers them close friends that will play into the part of the novel at some point. Then you have two supporting characters, Tommy Lawrence, who, uh, is friends with everybody in the group and, 
is addicted to speed and alcohol. And he's completely really laid back and in, actually insecure about himself. But, you know, everybody likes him. So when he splits from his girlfriend, he turns to heroin with Renton's help and sadly contracts AIDS. And you also have Second Prize. Uh, he's a supporting character. He is a raging alcoholic. Um, he's nicknamed the Second Prize due to his uh, ability to get into drunken fights and lose everything. Uh, he's a former professional football player or soccer player if you're over the United States side of the world. And he was injured and that's what kind of kicked off his alcoholism. Uh, his friends like him, but they are embarrassed to be around him. There are also some other guys and gals who uh, make up the rest of the world. You have Davy Mitchell, who is the straight man. Uh, he's completely and utterly drug-free, healthy lifestyle, but his friends with a lot of the guys. He also suffers from HIV, and he is angry at that fact. And he does actually get retribution later on in the novel. You have Matty, who's uh, also a heroin addict, and he is also friends with everyone else. Uh, you have Gavin Templey, another of the group's friends, another straight man who works at the local unemployment office, at the local dole office. You have Allison, who is a heroin addict, and former lover of Sick Boy. Uh, she actually ends the story uh, dating Spud. Uh, Leslie is a heroin addict. She is a mother of Dawn who dies of uh, SIDS, which, again, very, very hard chapter to deal with. You have Diane Colson, the underage teenager who uh, Renton slept with. At, at the end of a nightclub. We'll get to that. Uh, you have Kelly, who is Allison's best friend. Not an addict, but she actually becomes Renton's love interest later on in the, in the book. And you have Johnny Swan, who is everybody's dealer. He's also an addict and is portrayed here as, you know, I mean, okay, drug dealers are not considered the highest of the high, but I mean, he's considered slimy even for a drug dealer. This book does have a lot of different themes to it and we're going to go through these themes one by one one at a time and this is what's going to take up the majority of the episode so uh you're gonna have to bear with me but everybody in this book is addicted to something i mean i mentioned begbie is not quite a, he, he's, he's not called but he's addicted to something else there is something in their lives that they have to have and and just to get over, you know, to get through everything. So you have Renton, who's addicted to heroin and drugs. And I mean, and I say heroin and drugs because he does smoke marijuana, he does uh, snort cocaine when he's not taking heroin. Uh, Spud is the same way with heroin and drugs. He also indulges in petty theft. Sick Boy uh, originally was addicted to drugs, but now he's kind of moved into being addicted to power. And he takes that by going from a petty criminal and a petty drug addict to, like, a pimp. The Downward Spiral of Sick Boy is one of the underrated stories in the background of this 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 book. Uh, Begbie is I say I, I think I don't think he's an alcoholic, but he's definitely has he drinks too much. Uh, he's addicted to theft. He is definitely addicted to the adrenaline rush that comes with uh, violence, and he is addicted to power. He has to be in charge of of everything that the group does. You know, in the chapter strolling through the meadows, the guys want to go on uh, to a nightclub. And Begbie is demanding that everybody go on a pub crawl. Like, we have to go on a pub crawl. And when they told him no, he gets angry. And only when, I think, Matty decides that, you know what, let, I'll, I'll come with you, does he kind of mellow down and, and so on and so forth. Uh, you have Tommy, who's addicted to speed, then addicted to heroin. Uh, second prize is an alcoholic. Uh, Davy Mitchell and Gavin Templey also are not alcoholics, per se, but they do like, you know, do like to drink a lot. Uh... Allison, Leslie, and Johnny Swan are addicted to heroin, and Diane is addicted to sex and marijuana. Uh, now, Diane is underage, as I mentioned, but in her description in the book, it's like she 
Renton is not her first go around the block. Let's just put it that way. Uh, everybody tries to rationalize and justify their addictions. Or they have any one of their friends justify it for them. Even if the rationalizations change. They have no excuses for their addictions. They just they just are addicts. In the chapter Cock Problems, uh, Renton says he's probably right. If he'd asked the question last week, I'd have probably said something different. If he asks in the morning, it'll be something else again. And that's Renton explaining to Tommy why heroin is such a good drug, in his opinion. You know, um, Begbie, in the chapter The Glass, he says, that cunt and that cunt's fucking mates back there, they're the cunts that fucking stabbed my brother. Which kind of gives him the moral outrage to throw a glass at, you know, throw a glass behind him. It's one of the most iconic scenes in the movie. Throw a glass behind him, uh, smash a, a, a guy's head up, and then start a bar brawl. That's his justification. Even though it's explained by Renton that, you know, Begbie hits his brother, it's just another excuse to be able to justify why they do what they do. Uh, Renton, Spud, and Sick Boy, to be, to be fair to them, they all go through uh, withdrawal and they clean themselves up several times during the novel. Uh, especially when it comes to heroin. I think uh, Sick Boy definitely, after the death of Dawn, doesn't touch heroin again. And Renton kind of kicks and then goes back on and kicks and then go back, goes back on and then kicks, finally. Uh, he has uh, one more shot in the final chapter, which he describes to himself as, you know, hey, you know, I've been using this cheap Pakistani heroin for years and years and years. Now I've got a chance to use actual Colombian heroin. It's a once-in-a-lifetime shot. I'm going to take it. Which, again, is, is justification. It's it's an excuse, which is a, a lot of them do. Uh, but one thing they do do is they do kind of vilify the government, the Thatcher government, for their uh, how, they, uh, how they handled addiction treatment in the 80s, which was essentially to remove heroin and substitute it with methadone. Uh, in the chapter called In Disaster, Renton says, The state-sponsored addiction. Substitute methadone for smack. The sickly jellies. Three a day for a hit. I've not known many junkies on that program who didn't take all three jellies at once and go out scoring. So basically what he's saying, or what, I, what I'm interpreting as he's saying, is that now instead of paying the pimps and the dealers and for, for their drugs, now you go up to a medicine counter and you're still addicted. You know, it doesn't actually do anything. Uh, there is a chapter two called House Arrest, which basically is a very, very difficult chapter to read. Very, very difficult. And it's basically Renton's withdrawal from heroin uh, as a nightmare, as a, as a violent, violent nightmare. Twilight Zone of the Senses, uh, where time appears just not to flow. Uh, you know, it's just very, very descriptive of, of what withdrawal actually was, and especially how hard it hit Renton. But it doesn't just stop at addiction. There are other things, too, like uh, Thatcherism. As I mentioned, uh, this book takes place right slap bang in the middle of the Thatcher years. And in one of the cities that was hit by her policies. I mean, the main characters are all unemployed. They're young and they're undereducated. Which, you know, if you were young and undereducated, you couldn't make your way in Thatcher Britain. That's just, that's just how it was. Uh, the author compares Thatcher not very, very favorably. In the chapter Bang to Rights, after uh, Renton uh, had sex with his brother's girlfriend at his brother's funeral, he said, she was certainly too good for Billy. Then again, Myra Hindley or Margaret Thatcher were far too good for Billy. So, <laughs> um, for those who don't know, Myra Hindley was a child murderer. So he's essentially comparing Margaret Thatcher to a child murderer. 
you know, um, I mean, look, if you don't know, when Thatcher died, uh, the song that was number two in the British charts that week was Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead, which kind of goes to show how many people felt about uh, Thatcher at the time. Also, talking about Thatcherism, uh, when Renton was in London, he was schooled by a barman on the economic policies that kind of bred the yuppie culture. Because during this time, in the late 80s, there was a yuppie culture in London that was based on image rather than wealth. It was the image of wealth rather than the actual wealth itself. Uh, this the barman hasn't got a name, so basically the London barman says, the thing is, Jock, most of these geezers ain't even genuine yuppies. Mostly fucking shiny-ass clerks are commission-based salesmen. It's all fucking image, isn't it? All these cunts are up to their fucking eyes in debt. And he kind of he kind of hits the nail on the head. You know, it's... These guys are just playing a role that, you know, they want everybody to say, Look, I'm rich. I'm awesome. Uh, I think it was the comedian Jasper Carrot who said, like, you know, they'd have a couple of Rolls Royces in the driveway, but in the in the fridge they got two eggs, you know. And that's kind of what that was in that late in that late 80s. You know, people definitely were trying to appear more wealthy than they actually were. And that was because, you know, the country at the time was in a position of, well, I've got mine, I want yours, and I want to show you why I'm so great. And, you know, it was definitely done with... Uh, the politicians of the day, they kind of, you know, they they played up to that a lot. We also look at sexism in this book, too. Um, the majority, there are very few female characters in this book who were main characters. And what I mean by that is they don't have as a fulfilling life or as an interest in life as the main characters. Uh, the majority of the female characters are basically wives and girlfriends, and they fit the traditional role. Uh, one of the biggest examples of that is uh, Renton's mother. Um, you also have Begbie's girlfriend, June, who is mother to Begbie's children and a literal punching bag in the chapter Into Shitty uh, as Begbie's trying to make a getaway because he, he, he robbed a jeweler's. He, you know, he, he literally smacks her in the mouth and kicks her in the legs while she's, you know, she's trying to ask why he's leaving. Again, more more psychopathic. Uh, there are some independent and strong women in this book, don't get me wrong. I mean, Irving Welsh did write, uh, I think there was, f again, this is going to sound horrible, but four of the characters, as minor as they were, were independent and strong women. Uh, there's the two New Zealand backpackers, who just so happen to be lesbians. There's Kelly, who is very, very independent. And there's Diane, but unfortunately Diane is underage. So if you're not of age or not from the area, you were considered to be second class as how the book is. Now, look, I know that's not what it was going for, but a lot of the female characters in the book did appear that way as yes sir, no sir, three bags full sir. Now, also a lot of the female characters that were shown uh, in the book were addicts. So, you know, they were very, very, they were being led a lot too. So maybe it was easy for them to be led. I, I mean, I don't know, but, but you know, it, it didn't look good. But uh, all the other female characters in the book are exploited to a degree. Uh, Allison is used by Sick Boy for sex during the ch opening chapter. Uh, Les is fathers a child by Sick Boy. In, you find that out in the chapter, it goes without saying. And actually, Renton uses a woman called Hazel, and only in a social sense, but that's because between the pair of them, they have so many issues that it's kind of a cover for both of them. And you find out about that in the chapter, The Glass. Sick Boy only sees women as sex objects. And I mean, 
at the end of the book, he starts abusing them and starts pimping them out. Uh, in the chapter in Overdrive, he's basically scouting for women. Uh, caught in disaster, he offer- that's the first time he offers out uh, his girlfriend to be pimped. And in Station to Station, he's actually at, at the point that he is pimping, uh, you know, for real. Now, I know a lot of people will use the modern term of the pimp and everything like that, but we're talking literal smack you around, you go have sex with that person and bring me my money. You know, that, that, that pimp, a real pimp, not this, not this, you know, pop culture pimp that we use today. Uh, there's a lot of racism, too, in this book. Um, there is a scene where a bunch of football hooligans uh, abuse an Asian woman after a football match. Uh, Spud's cousin is stabbed in a fight after being racially abused. And, you know, Irvin Welsh's description of the Scottish could be considered racialistic because it does use a racial slur. Now, disclaimer, Irvin Welsh is Scottish, but he's also using uh, Rent and Stream of Consciousness, you know, to, to explain his opinion on why he thinks that phrase is not insulting, but it's just racist to black people as opposed to insulting to Scots. I'm not going to repeat it here because I don't want, you know, but it's it's in the chapter uh, London Crawling. Uh, we also talk about the current British imperialism. At his brother's funeral, he reflects on his disdain for the ongoing war in Northern Ireland. Uh, he describes his brother not as a hero, but, quote, a spare prick in a uniform. He died not knowing what he was doing. Uh, all references to the uh, Falklands War at the time were considered highly, highly negative. Uh, look at a chapter of Scottish Soldier, where um, Johnny Swan has lost his leg, and he's trying to... Uh, you know, trying to get to Thailand to exploit women, which is, you know, what he wanted to do, and he's just literally begging, and a woman gives him 20 pounds and says she'll condemn Thatcher till her dying day because of the Falklands War where she lost her son. Uh, Renton's relatives uh, are also unionists, so they come in from Glasgow, and as you can tell in the chapter, banged to rights and grown up in public, they dis- they they show a good sense of British nationalism and British imperialism. They they demand that Northern Ireland be a part of the United Kingdom as opposed to say the the, the Republicans in Ireland wanting it to be you know a United Ireland. We also look at Scottish nationalism too. Uh, Renton doesn't see himself as Scottish, and you very very hear everybody talk about how great they are, you know how 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 much they love being Scottish, how much they love being Scottish. Uh, aside from Renton's Glaswegian relatives. Uh, there is no Scottish nationalism. Only when we're talking about football, you know, that's the only time they 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 feel Scottish. Uh, Renton even goes one further as he says, "Scotland, the brave my ass. Scotland, the shite in cunt more like it." You know, he 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 says the Scots make good soldiers, but aside from that, you know, they'll do anything just to appease the English. Which I guess back then that might have been it. But, I mean, you don't see that as much now. I mean, you know, the the uh, the animosity between the English and the Scots is, is some of the highest I've seen in my lifetime, at least, anyway. But to Renton's credit or discredit or whatever, he seems to act more and more stereotypically Scottish when he's in London, at least for the first couple of days. He kind of, like, turns into a mini-Begbie, for lack of a better term. You know, he, he he's aggressive. He's, you know, you look at me, you know, just that, that, that kind of thing. It also talks about sexuality. Um... Many of the characters in this book are coming across as macho, macho characters. Um, some of the guys are homophobic. But in the, you know, in the, not say ironic, but, you know, in the way you would, they have no problem with lesbianism. You know, so they, they, they two guys together is awful, two women together is great. You know, just that stupid, stupid nonsense that, that people 
think about. Um, but Sickbar and Begbie are definitely the worst offenders. You know, they, they are extremely homophobic, and they uh, Begbie just, just straight up hates gay people, thinks they're unnatural, and Sickboy believes that um, it was homosexuality that brought the AIDS epidemic into Edinburgh. So, you know, that's 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 them. Uh, Renton's stance on homosexuality is different, however. He believes that uh, when it comes to love, when it comes to who you're attracted to, it's got absolutely nothing to do with anything other than aesthetics. Nothing to do with morality. It's just aesthetics. If a guy looks cute, you'll go with a guy. If a woman looks cute, you'll go with a woman, and so on and so forth. Um, but in saying that, most of the characters are straight, and they do have numerous partners throughout the novel, including the women. So, but it is it is a very very good statement that the way he the way he described Renton's view on homosexuality, I think, is one of the uh, the best ways I think I've ever heard to describe. It's not it's it's aesthetics, not morality, which you know I think is I think is fair. I think that's correct. Um, talking of morality. All the main characters do have problems with morality. Um, I'm not talking about the traditional morality in the sense of, you know, are they a good person? Do they keep to the law and everything like that? I'm talking about themselves. They're not even moral to themselves. So, for example, let's let's look at let's look at the main characters. Let's look at Renton. Uh, Renton vows to get off drugs, yet he ODs on his court day. That's in the chapters "Court and Disaster" and "House Arrest." Uh, he tries not to rip off his friends, yet ends up doing exactly that. Chapter "Station to Station." Now, on the one hand, he unwittingly sleeps with a 14-year-old girl that he picks up at a nightclub. And this act could be considered excusable. Now, there are a lot of people who find this inexcusable. Oh, my word, he slept with a 14-year-old child. And on the one hand, yes, if it was announced that she was 14, he just picked her up at a bar. However, that could be considered excusable, but his subsequent meetups with her are not excusable at all. He, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's condemned for that. And that's in the chapter First Shagging Ages. Uh, he's a habitual liar. He will do anything and say anything to get his own way. Not necessarily as a sociopath, but he does display guilt and empathy to others, but he just doesn't want to get in trouble. He doesn't, you know, he's trying to manipulate the situation for him. Uh, again, look up the chapters, calling disaster and searching for the inner man, you know. Uh, he feels very, very guilty over the death of baby Dawn. Uh, Dawn is actually one of the main points in his heroin withdrawal. And again, that chapter is so difficult to read. So difficult to read. He's also very, very moralistic when it comes to his diet. What do you mean his diet? We're talking about drugs? No, 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 seriously, his diet. Uh, he's a vegetarian by choice. You can find that out in House Arrest, and uh, there is a light that never goes out where it kind of, you know, jumps up to him. And even the first Shagging Ages, you know, he just talks about his vegetarianism, just, you know, what it is. Uh, it's not because of any moral thing, he just doesn't like meat. And with that in mind, he chooses to abuse animals. Uh, strolling through the meadows, he tries to throw a rock at a squirrel, and, you know, it's just, he, he, he considers all dogs vermin. He just hates animals, which is weird. You know, a lot of vegetarians have an affinity for animals, whereas he can't stand them. Uh, sick Boy, his morality is also used in this book. Uh, it's not addiction that gets him in trouble, but his high sex drive. Uh, you can look at uh, In Overdrive and First Shagging Ages to, you know, explain how high of a sex drive that he actually has. Uh, he did have a child with a fellow addict. Uh, he denounces heroin the day that his child dies, and that's in the chapter it goes without saying. However, he doesn't acknowledge that the child is his prior to that moment. So, you know, Renton says that he's putting on a show, and just so that, you know, people can think, oh, poor sick boy, once again. Uh, after he beats his heroin addiction, 
He just starts manipulating everybody around him to get his own way and to get further in life. I mentioned the pimpin. Uh, he sets up the drug deal at the end of the novel. Uh, he's just trying to make sure that everybody does things his way. And he's always got, you know, somewhere to to leave. You know, he's he's always... he's watching. He starts watching out for himself rather than how he used to, where he'd watch out for himself, surely, but he would also watch out for his friends. He now becomes completely selfish. Uh, he starts to pimp out his, his future girlfriends, using the promise of drugs as a motivator. You find that out in the chapter Station to Station and in Caught in Disaster. You know, um, it's just... It, his his downward descent into that kind of character is one of the real uncomfortable things in the book, as I mentioned earlier. Um, he sees himself as a smooth, suave operator, but in reality is just selfish, and he just looks out for himself. And that fact is not lost on his friends either. But, you know, it's... it's he doesn't see that his friends know. He knows that he's that way, but he doesn't think that his friends know. But it's quite obvious that his friends know. Uh, Spud is an addict, and his morality shows him having, you know, low self-esteem, and it keeps him out with the, with the crowd, even though he, he feels out of place. So he's going against his morals just hanging around with his friends. You know, look at the chapter strolling through the meadows. Look at there's a light that never goes out. He just, he feels like he doesn't belong there, but because they like him and, and in cases love him, you know, that's the only reason he's he's there. Uh, he does have a strong affinity to animals, you know, as you can tell in Strong Through the, the Meadows. So he does have some morals. Uh, he has the presence of being wasted, even though he's absolutely clean. So there's a chapter um, in Cold in Disaster. Spud looks like he's completely and utterly wasted, even when he's stone cold sober. But he's also very, very clumsy. And because he's addicted to theft, uh, they believe that he will screw up the final deal in the last chapter, Station to Station, by knocking over a salt shaker in The Little Chef, you know. Um, he does take pleasure in petty thievery, but he doesn't do that as a, more of a power play. That's because that's what he's good at, if, if, you know, if you can be good at that kind of thing. You know, he, he, he tries to go in and not hurt people and, you know, to pay for his addiction. That's in the chapter Easy Money for the Professionals. Now, it's not justifying, you know, bad behavior, and it's not justifying petty criminals. But, I mean, to him, it was more, like I said, a career, rather than if people got upset, and if people got angry, and if people lost their possessions and everything, that was just part of the job. You know, that's the way he saw it. It's not correct, obviously, but that's how he justified it, and that's where his morals could come into question. Well, hey, you know, you're stealing the hard-working stuff. Well, that's just what I do, you know. Um, doesn't make it right, but that's how he justifies it. Uh, Tommy, his morality kind of switches, too. Uh, he is popular. Uh, he is, you know, he he's a popular friend to everyone involved. You know, the chapter's her man, a disappointment, cock problems. You know, they show that Tommy is the guy you want in behind you. Tommy is the, is the man that you want in your corner. He is insecure about himself. The chapter who man and Scotland takes drugs in psychic defense. You can tell that, you know, he, he does, I don't want to say hate himself, but he does have these moments of insecurity. Uh, he does turn to drink and speed. You know, that's, that's what he does. That's how he parties. And he's also done pretty much every type of drug, as acknowledged in uh, the chapter Cock Problems. But he hadn't tried heroin at that point. Uh, like Begbie, he's a tough guy. But this is where his morals come in. Because unlike Begbie, he's the kind of tough guy who only shows it when provoked. And most of the time, it's just 
threats rather than violence. Like the chapter of disappointment. You know, he, he threatens the guy with an ass whooping, as opposed to Begbie, who tried, would try and stab him. Uh, in the chapter Her Man, he tries to, you know, he's attacked by a woman and her boyfriend, and he leaves the woman completely nutty alone and only attacks the man back. So he does have some sense of morality. Um, he does turn to heroin after a breakup with his girlfriend, and I think he only wanted to try the drug. You know, but unfortunately, he was predispositioned to addiction. There are some people who I know who won't drink because they don't like it, but they'll they'll smoke weed like it's going out of fashion. You know, um, and that that because they're just m- more into it. And I think, unfortunately for Tommy, he was more into uh, heroin than anything else, whether he knew or not. And he does blame Renton for his HIV internally, but he does have a semblance of friendship with him. You know, so inside he's mad that during all of Renton's life, all of Renton's addiction, he hasn't even so much as got a cold. Whereas Tommy's only been doing this for a couple of months, and now all of a sudden, bang, HIV, and he's he's on his way to death. Uh, that's the chapter Winter in West Granton. That is a very, very hard chapter to read, too, because you feel sorry for Tommy, but you don't feel sorry for Tommy. And, and that feels awful. Because Tommy knew what was was going on, you know, it's 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 victim blaming, and Irvin Welsh wrote it in such a way as to where you feel ultimately sorry for Tommy, but there's a caveat of out of everyone in the book, he knew better, and which is which is you know which is sad in my opinion. And then we move to Begby. Where do you start with morality when it comes to Francis Begby? He is a psychopath. There is no two ways about it. No ifs, ands, buts, ways, or whys. He's violent. He's very, very violent. Uh, he's been known to beat his girlfriend in the chapter Into Shitty. Uh, and just about anybody he comes into contact with. Look at the chapter The Glass. He starts a barroom brawl just to get off on it. You know, uh, He beats some guy to a pulp in the chapter Train Spotting at Leith Central Station. You know, He is close to, our, to the group of friends, the main characters in this book. But he's also closer to a lot of the friends he doesn't hang out with day to day. Uh, so again, you look at the glass, you look at train spot in Leith Central Station. Um, Renton describes it as he met the guys who he's closer with, the usual places that uh, people like Bagby meet them, you know, in young offenders institutes and prisons and so on and so forth. Uh, he will assault anyone and everyone for just literally no reason. You know, no reason at all. He's very, very... Um, native to Leith. He, he he considers it a fantastic place on the surface. In the in the chapter train spotting at Leith Central Station, he kind of, you know, he shows that he doesn't really care and he wants to get out of there as quickly as possible. Uh, he also has a mythology about him created by his friends, you know, based on certain things. Like for example, you know, Begby would never waste one of his friends. While the he wouldn't, but the people he hangs out with are not as close to him as his friends are anyway. And anybody who stepped up to Begbie has disproved that theory. You know, they, they kind of build a mythology just to make sure that, you know, to justify hanging out with this psychopath and to justify their friendship. And I think one of the reasons why they all hang around him is because they feel safer. I mean, who's going who's gonna to fuck with Begbie's, Francis Begbie's friends? That's why they were hanging out with him. Uh, he nearly killed an American tourist who did actually stand up to him. You find that out in the chapter Strolling Through the Meadows. And also in that same chapter, he doesn't equate the difference between uh, self-defense and assault. So it's mentioned in here that Renton stabbed somebody 
and Spud issues the caveat that it was in self-defense, whereas Begby just stabs people to stab people. And Begby couldn't see the, the caveat between that. So he's kind of got a blind spot. As far as he's concerned, violence is violence, and it, it's a jungle, you know, and you either put up or shut up. Um, but yeah, Begby is, is a scary, scary character. And yeah, whew, yeah. Uh, one of the other characters that's questionable morality is Swanee. Uh, Johnny Swan. He is the boy's main uh, heroin dealer. Uh, he deals in heroin and cocaine. Or at least he, he uses cocaine. Uh, I don't know if he deals it or not. It doesn't mention in the book, but it does mention that uh, he uses a combination of heroin and cocaine when he shoots up. Uh, he's an addict like those he sells to. Uh, it mentions in the Skag Boys that you have to go a little bit further up the chain to find a dealer that doesn't already use. Uh, during the introduction of the character, he switches his morality. I mean, everybody says that Johnny Swan was this lovable, laughable cr creature who, you know, yeah, he, he, he deals drugs, but he's really, really a good guy. And then all of a sudden, Renton says, I don't know who this guy is, but he's a monster, and he's a long way from the person I know as Johnny Swan. Um, he's very, very exploitative. I, I think he's racist. I think the character definitely is racist. Uh, he's very, very exploitative of uh, women of color, and definitely to uh, uh, women from Thailand. He, uh, you know, he sees them as sex objects who will provide his every whim just because he has white skin and a few crisp tanners in his pocket. Uh, however, his female friends are his female associates, I should say, because there are no friends in this business, only associates. Uh, he's, he, he doesn't exploit them, and he takes pride in that. In the chapter, A Leg of a Situation, he mentions that he could have had Alison singing for her supper, but he didn't because he liked her, you know, and, and just... just you know, he's exploitative to these this group of women, but this group of women are okay, and, you know, yeah. Uh, three, two, one. Uh, the rest of the characters in the book, uh, they either enable or endorse everything that everybody's doing. So a lot of the minor characters, you know, uh, Gav Tempoli, for example, he works at the Dole, he rolls his eyes, but at the same time, you know, he lets his friends do what they do, and he loans them money, and, you know, he, he, he advises them on, on this kind of thing and that kind of thing, and, you know, he's, he's yeah, he, he, he enables everybody. He doesn't demand that they go to work, they just, you know, he just, he kind of helps them out a little bit. And one of the other characters, Davy Mitchell, uh, is the only one to commit murder during the uh, novel. Uh, the chapter Bad Blood, um... That's a hard chapter to read, too. You notice there's a theme here. That's a hard chapter to read. Uh, Bad Blood, basically, uh, Davy's story is is this. Uh, his girlfriend was raped by an addict who was HIV. Uh, the girlfriend was clear, but somehow, in a convoluted kind of way, she was a carrier, and Davy ended up with HIV. And he tracked down who raped her to this uh, support group that he was going to. And he got close to him, found out things about his life, and then when Alan Venters was on his deathbed, he showed him just how evil that he was, and Davy showed just how manipulative he could be, and killed him. He smothered him to death with a pillow. And because he was so sick, you know, it was shown that he died of pneumonia. You know, so, uh, yeah, he's the only one that commits murder. So, um, it's, yeah. Another thing of this book is loyalty. Uh, that's one of Begby's biggest, biggest things. Renton believes his betrayal of Begby is the one thing that allows him to permanently start a new life. 
uh, because you know Begby Begby might be a psychopath, but he 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 shows loyalty to his friends and he expects that loyalty back. So he always has their back if they have his back. Now, yes, he's a psychopath. He yes, he 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 will use glasses and knitting needles and knives to 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 get what he wants. But he's very very loyal to his friends, and Begby does that by putting them on a pedestal, usually for his own purposes. So he'll say, for example, uh, in the chapter the glass, he says that uh, Renton is a very very smart dresser. He's a man of sophistication and style, not unlike myself. So he's he gives his friends imaginary qualities, places them on a pedestal, then takes them for himself. Uh, Sick Boy, on the other hand, has no loyalty. He absolutely has no loyalty. He doesn't even acknowledge his own kid. Uh, in the chapter Station to Station, he didn't think twice about leaving his friends high and dry. So if something went down, that's not his problem. Phew, he was gone. Uh, he also, as I mentioned, he also started pimping out, uh, heroin addicts. For no reason, other than he wanted money, and that's his way of doing it. He, he showed he could exercise control over somebody. And that was kind of, again, he spiraled out of control after the death of his child. But unlike taking the drugs, he straightened his life out and became more ruthless. Not aggressive, but definitely more ruthless in his thinking. Uh, Spud is definitely a follower. He's, he's no leader, but he's definitely a follower. Uh, strolling through the meadows, for example. Uh, that chapter he talks about. Uh, Begbie wants to go on a on a pub crawl and, and and you know attack folks, whereas they want to go to a club, as I mentioned earlier. And Spud just is like, you know, I, I, that's not my bag. I don't want to do that. I want to do what someone else does. You know. So he he definitely follows. Uh, he he doesn't stand up for himself. He just he goes with the flow. And if he's got a couple of choices, then yeah, okay, he'll 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 pick one. But, you know, he, he usually doesn't... He doesn't think for himself as much. I mean, Speedy Recruitment, for example. He takes speed to get through a job interview because Renton tells him, hey, let's take some speed. He'll get through it. Uh, now, of course, he's very, very nervous to get through it. And, you know, but whatever. Uh, Renton has some loyalty. He has loyalty to his family, even though they don't really get along. He has some loyalty to his to Spud, definitely. Uh, he has some loyalty to Tommy, but at the end of the day, he rips off his friends. Also, they show tribalism in their choice of football team that they support. They are all fans of a Hibernian football club, and you know, like like a lot of guys, they show tribalism for those who aren't. I mean, Renton gets in fights with his brother over who's the better team, Hearts or Hibs. Uh, in the chapter Victory on New Year's Day, one of the mi minor characters, Stevie, gets harassed and assaulted by Heart of Melothian fans, the uh, other Edinburgh team. After a match, even though they won, they still want to take out their violence on someone. Um, you know, so yeah, that's that's the chapter victory on New Year's Day. There's also some kind of uh, native v tourist thing going on. And what I mean by that, but what I mean by native is local. You know, the guys from Edinburgh, the guys from Leith. Uh, Begbie is always willing to fight the tourists, as seen in Strolling Through the Meadows. Uh, the characters see the annual. Edinburgh Festival is kind of classist. you got to look at the uh, chapter of the Skag Boys, the first day of the Edinburgh Festival, and Strong Through the Meadows. There is definitely uh, a rivalry between the guys from Edinburgh and the guys from Glasgow. Uh, that is used mainly in Bang to Rights, too. And the thing about that is, is that while it's a local rivalry, while we hate you if you're not from this area of the world, when these guys go to London... Look at the chapters Station to Station. Look at the chapters London Crawling. They adhere to the traditional stereotype of the Scotsman. 
you know, for lack of a better term, they play as the as the jocks. There's there's no other way to describe it. You know, they blend in, they become more aggressive. They you know, it's just it's the the stereotypical Scotsman. And even going further, they become more of the stereotypical Glaswegian than than you know, than guys from Edinburgh. Now, full disclaimer, I don't know much about, you know, the stereotypes of Edinburgh. I mean, but you know, they, they do become, for lack of a better term, stereotypical Glaswegians during their times in London. The final major theme of the book is uh, AIDS and HIV. This book takes place in the mid to late 80s, and it's during the AIDS epidemic. And there are a lot of people, you know, with misconceptions about what went on during that time. And in the book as well, they play that up to it. As I mentioned, Sick Boy believes that uh, it was a gay landlord who was uh, sleeping with his tenants who were HIV uh, that spread it through the city. Uh, a lot of people believed that you were either gay or an addict if you got uh, HIV or AIDS during this during the novel. Uh, there's constant rumors as to who is and who isn't infected. I mean, in the very first chapter, they talk about that. Uh, and in the chapter, uh, Memories of Matty, they talk about that, you know. And it turns out that Tommy eventually does succumb. Uh, but it does show also that there's a lack of understanding about the illness. You know, in the chapter The Glass, they talk about um, how they sent a woman home from hospital, like, in full hazmat gear, in full, you know, uh, and, you know, full, like, you see you see them, they, they dress up in these uniforms after a chemical spill, you know, in full, full-on radiation suits, and they burnt the woman out of the house, you know. Uh, in winter in West Granton, Tommy's house is graffitied with, you know, Plague and HIV, you know, and just... Nobody knew at the time of the 80s how things were being spread, and nobody knew at the time how to handle it, and, you know, people thought it was airborne, people thought you could get it from shaking hands, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, in Edinburgh in particular during that time, at least in, in the novel, I'm not, not sure if this is real life, that, and that's my fault for not doing the proper research, but uh, the politics of why it became big in the drug community of Edinburgh, uh, they mentioned that uh, in the Skag Boys and the chapter it goes without saying, that the needle exchange that was set up in Edinburgh was closed down uh, by the government, uh, and, you know, so the supply of fresh needles went away, and then people started using shooting galleries, and it only took so many hits before, bang, the virus started getting spread around. You know, you look at Renton, uh, he got clean, he relapsed, got clean, relapsed, and part of his uh, coming clean was he had to, you know, make sure that he was HIV negative, and so, you know, he went through the tests and everything like that, and that's where it turns out that Tommy found out that he had full-blown AIDS or HIV, and, you know, it just, it, it, it was just constant rumors, and nobody knew exactly how it was being spread around. They knew it was spread around through uh, sharing of needles, and they knew through sex, but they didn't know why, you know, they didn't know how it started, they didn't know how to, how to handle it, you know, I mean, Davy Mitchell and Tommy, two very, very close friends, uh, one knew how to deal with it with proper food, heating, and Tommy probably didn't even survive the winter in where he was, that's the chapter, Winter in West Granton, Tommy didn't survive it, and, you know, it was, it's a very, very hard thing to read, especially now looking back, now knowing that AIDS and HIV is, while it's a big deal, and while it's a horrible disease, you can't catch it airborne, you can't catch it by shaking hands with someone, or hanging out with someone, you know, there are people listening right now, who have a friend, or a family member, or a loved one, who is HIV positive, or has AIDS, 
and that they don't know that that family member has HIV or AIDS. You know, so you you don't catch it by shaking hands or hugging or whatever. You know, it's 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 a transmitted disease and it has to be transmitted by fluid exchanges, and that's why it exploded in in the novel. That's why it exploded because of the shared use of communal needles and a lot of unprotected sex. I mean, even uh, in the chapter Fish Shaggin Ages, where Renton sleeps with Dan, uh, they don't use protection. And afterwards, he's like, oh crap, if she'll sleep with me, she'll sleep with anyone, I better go, you know, get something checked out. So that, I mean, that's basically, you know, that's a hard, hard thing to do. So, I mean, like I said, this book is very, very thematic, very, 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 very gritty, and very, very, very hard to read. And in my opinion, this book is definitely 10 out of 10. Definitely. It is a very, very gritty read. I'm sorry. Whether, whether If you like this kind of book, if you like anti-establishment, it's very, very good for you. But that doesn't mean that it is easy. It is a tough read in terms of the language used. It is a tough read in terms of the dialect used. It is a tough read if you are not a big fan of swear words. It is a tough read if you have been or are an addict. It is a tough read if you have... You know, it just it's a very, very hard read, but it's a good read. It is worth fighting through and reading every single bit of this book. It's filled with philosophical statements, and not, you know, the uh, traditional philosophers that we hear, but just, you know, basically for people who are considered scum of the earth, lords of the low, plebs, uh, peasants, whatever you want to call it, you know, it does have a lot of philosophical advice in there. Which, you know, I don't think that maybe was the intention, but there is definitely a lot of things that, you know, that speak philosophically to a lot of people. Uh, there are few, if any of the characters, have any redeeming qualities about them. They're all scum in one regard, and they're all heroes in another regard. There are no redeeming qualities about Begbie. There are none. There are no redeeming qualities about Sick Boy. I'm sorry, a violent psychopath or an uncaring sociopath. I, there are no good points in either of those characters. Renton does have some redeeming qualities, but he throws it all away when he continues an affair with a 14-year-old child. Spud has some redeeming qualities. He's naive, he doesn't want to be there, but at the same time, he still follows along and does everything that, that he should. So, you know, that, that, I don't think the characters are redeemable in that sense. You know, we're all familiar with the phrase, uh, bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. And one of the things in this book is shows why good things happen to bad people. Because the bad people play the system. The bad people break the rules, bend the rules in their favor, whereas good people don't. And then they usually end up with the bad things happening to them. Uh, that's shown a lot in this book. It's shown uh, by uh, Renton and Spud. You know, they don't want to stay. They don't want to work. They want to stay on the dole. So the way to do that, lie in a job interview. But don't make it too obvious. But tweak it just tweak the system just enough so that you tried. You know, and that's that's it all the way through. You know, and it's it, again it shows it shows karma. A lot of people think that karma, which is you know the wrong use of the phrase karma, is that I've suffered, 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 but my ticket's coming up any second. It's gonna come good to me. That's karma, baby. No karma is. Bad things will happen to you, then good things will happen to you. Well, good things will happen to you and bad things will happen to you. It depends on how you, you put it in there. So, these guys are showing that we're drug addicts, we're thieves, we're murderers. Yet we still always come up smiling. Uh, Irving Walsh does make use of inner thoughts very, very well. Especially in the first person chapters. He wrote it as if to say that all the characters had some kind of internal conflict. And... 
I agree with that. They just... Everyone has an excuse or a reason for doing it, but there's always that small sliver of... Uh, should I do this? Should I do this? Yes, I'll do it. Well, I'm doing this because of this. And there's always, like, the, the, the smallest nugget of regret. The smallest nugget. Um... Somebody described the book. Let me let me pull up my copy here for a minute. Uh, the Sunday Times called it the voice of punk. Grown up, grown wiser, and grown eloquent. I disagree. I don't think it's punk grown up. I think it's actual punk. It, 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 is, it is a punk novel. I mean, it is as raw as stuff like, you know, um, the Sex Pistols and The Clash. It is very, it is that raw. You know, it is very, 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 very gritty, and it's very, very realistic. It does not sugarcoat things. It, it tells you that life is shit, and here's why life is shit, and life is still going to be shit. This is what we have to do to survive. Um, I think it is, it, is, it is punk through and through. It is not a grown-up version of punk. It is definitely punk. And, you know, again, Irving Welsh spent a lot of time in the late 70s in London during the punk scene. Of course his writing is going to be punk. If, if I only listen to Britpop bands, spoiler alert, I do, the songs that I write are going to sound like they came off Britpop. If I only watch a certain style of movie, if I only watch a Quentin Tarantino movie, I would write movies in the style of Quentin Tarantino. Not maybe not as good, definitely not as good, but in that style. So if you know he hung out in punk in the punk land a lot and started writing, it's going to brush off. It is going to have, you know, it's going to happen. So uh, I think it, it it is the equivalent of a punk punk novel. It is a punk novel. There's no other way to say it. The fragmented and unlinked narrative mirror daily life of the of, of the world, in my opinion. And what that means is, look, I have a goal, I have a dream. And in a lot of books and a lot of movies, the first act is setting up the goal, the second act is working towards it, the third act is achieving it. This kind of goes in the other direction of showing you what happens in between. It doesn't show the successes. It doesn't show just the failures. It shows everything. It shows the highs and the lows. There's sections dedicated to sobriety and addiction. And, you know, that's what I think keeps you engaged. Because one minute, you know, you, you start to root for these guys. Oh my god, they're going to be clean. They're going to be clean and they're back in the shooting gallery. God dang it. You know. Um, so it does definitely show the stuff that's in between. Uh, it is a very, very anti-establishment book. And its themes were definitely, and I'm not talking about anti-establishment in the sense of government, I'm talking about just in, in literature circles in the United Kingdom alone. According to Lord Gowrie, the chairman of a panel, the novel was rejected for the Booker Prize shortlist after offending the sensibilities of two female judges. Despite this unease from the critical establishment, Welsh's novel has received as many good reviews as the ones swathed in disgust and outrage, establishing a tradition that continues to this day. Now, I got that quote from Irvin Welsh's website, and I think that is 100% the most accurate thing you could possibly say about this book. This book is great. This book is fantastic. You know, any, any superlative you want to throw out there, right? But its themes are so taboo that, oh, I'm, I'm, no, we're not going to talk about this. We, we can't talk about this. This is, this is not the right time. This is not the right place. The, mm -mm, no, 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 no. Let's, let's push this book to one side and let's review, I don't know, a Nick Hornby book. Now, no disrespect to Nick Hornby. Nick Hornby's a better writer than I'll ever be. And in fact, I do love a lot of his, his novels. But his novels weren't as, you know, gritty and as grimy as this kind of thing. This is the kind of, Trainspotting is the kind of thing I think Chris Rock said it in one of his things where he was saying, you know, we've seen jail documentaries but not the HBO special. Irving Walsh definitely writes the, 
premium cable special of everything. You know, he doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't cover it up. He tells it exactly like it is and exactly like it was. And whether that's pretty or ugly, he'll tell you. And, you know, yeah. So that, that's why I love it. I think it's a great book. It's great. It's well written. It's 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 just it's really good guys it's really good if you've not read it i know i've given away some of the some of the major plot points but if you haven't read it you have to read it you have to you have to take a couple hours and read it you have to ignore leave your sensibilities at the door and read it because it is a damn good book it, it is a fantastic book it got me back into reading again i'm not gonna you know i'm not gonna say i was proud of the fact that i wouldn't read you know, because I wasn't. I'd, I'd read sometimes, and then other times, you know, I, I wouldn't be seen dead with a book in my hands. But this book is so good. This book is just, it, it's fantastic. It is, you know, I, I, can't, I can't praise it enough, and I know I sound like I'm repeating myself, but, um, you know, I can't praise it enough, because it is, it is a, um, I, th- I think it's one of the greatest books ever written, if not the greatest book ever written. Definitely the gr- the greatest fiction book ever written. And, you know, a lot of people will 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 agree and a lot of people will disagree. But, you know, that's just my opinion. And, again, this that's, that's what this podcast is. This podcast is my opinion. You know, now, one of the major things about Trainspotting was the fact that it was adapted into a motion picture. And we talked about, at the beginning of the podcast, the, the, ver- the very first episode, we talked about... Um, it was it was as, wasn't a faithful adaptation, but it was you know it had to put a linear story in that. It had to develop the characters. So here's my question, and this kind of you know this kind of goes against a lot of things. But um, this book was a book first, then a movie. But I think the movie shed a lot of light onto the book. So um, should stage and movie adaptations take direct input from the author of the original novel? That's the social media question for this week. Now, disclaimer. You can't go to Charles Dickens and ask him, obviously. But I'm talking about if it's a modern piece of literature, should they have direct input from their author? Or should the studios be able to do what they want? That's the social media question for this week. I know it's a little, little confusing. But also, you know, it's it's the only one I could think of. Because, again, this book is, I don't want to say negative, but it is a down book. But, it's again, it's a damn good book. It's something that, you know, we should all read. We should all take our time to read. And, you know, I'm babbling again. So, like I said, that's that's it for this week. Trainspotting, 10 out of 10. Should movies that are adapted from books have input from the author? And if you don't own the book and you want to read the book, I recommend you looking online for it. I know definitely it's on Google Play. Um, I know definitely you can find it on Amazon. And I think you can go directly to Irvin Welsh's website itself and, you know buy a copy of the book too i do recommend it and i think it is it's great i think it's a fantastic fantastic story that's it for this week uh we are going to be doing a few more things right here in a few moments are you balding do you miss your flowing locks are like me you in denial and believe that your hair's just thinning do your friends call you baldy shiny or some other such nickname Yes, there are a few things that make people anxious other than the loss of hair, and there are several ways in which you can deal with it. But if you're the type who doesn't want to shave your head and doesn't feel like a comb-over's for you, we have a great product for you. Introducing Good Looking Hair. That's right, now instead of wearing a hat, 
all accepting that your bald spots exist and shaving your head, you can take a can of spray paint and paint your dome to fill in what nature has decided you do not need. Never again will the Hulk Hogan look beyond your mind. Just two shakes and then you can spray your head and guaranteed nobody will know the difference. Order now for just $9.99 and by doing so, we'll throw in a second can absolutely free. But wait! The first 20 callers will receive our new product, Manly Chest. That's right, for those few lucky cue balls, you'll be able to use our patented body spray so you can look like Chewbacca while smelling like a paint store. Order now! Alright guys, that's almost it for this week. Um, I know that train spotting was a long conversation, but at the same time it needed to be long because you know it's it's a very very th it's a very very thorough book I think. But um, yeah, if you if you want to read it, go to the usual places, you know, bookstores, libraries, Amazon, etc. etc. And you'll have a great time reading it if that's your kind of thing. Uh, if you're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, look up Because Maybe Pod. Uh, we are looking to expand our audience. So if you do like this podcast and you have liked the pages, please share them with your friends. Uh, they might be interested in what we have to say. They might not be interested. I always believe that word of mouth is possibly the best advertising tool out there. And if you like something, you know, go ahead and share it with them. You know, it, it, it'll be good for, for us as a whole in the podcast so that we can expand and, you know, we can do better things. We can do a, a lot more with a little bit more support and that's what we're looking for right now we're just looking to grow we're looking to expand and any help that can be given will be 100 percent appreciated so let's talk about next week real quick uh next week we are going to be talking about one of my favorite video games of all time in fact we're going to be talking about two of my favorite video games of all time we're going to be reviewing Oddworld, abe's odyssey and Oddworld, abe's exodus uh, two very, very important games in terms of the platform genre, and definitely two of the better games that were released in the 90s. Uh, spoiler alert, they do actually have very, very good background stories, and very, very, you know, it, it's a very, very good pair of games, and, uh, you know, I enjoyed playing them every second. So with that in mind, uh, one of the things I wanted to do was start you know, recording myself playing the games. Let's do, let's do a Let's Play. And I've got a couple of days off with uh, Thanksgiving coming up, and I know I'm going to be busy, but at the same time, I know there's going to be some time where I have some downtime. And so what I was going to do was during the the preview of next week and, you know, the first couple of days after, I was going to go ahead and record myself playing uh, playing Oddworld. Uh, not the original games, because unfortunately uh, I have no way of recording the original games, but I do have the new version, the updated version, which is the same game with, uh, I don't say graphical change, they, they rebuilt the game from the ground up, you know, but at the, in essence it's the same game with the same task. So uh, that'll be fun, that's going to be something I'm going to be doing next week. So guys... That's pretty much it for this week. If you have any questions, go ahead and contact us on social media. If you want to send me an email, go to becausemaybepodcast at gmail.com. I'll go ahead and read everything. I'll answer everything. If you want to look us up on YouTube, go to Because Maybe Podcast in the YouTube search bar and you'll find us. We ha Again, we have videos, we have uh, samples, we have extra content, and that's something you know that we're going to be going ahead with. So until next week, everybody have a great couple of days. See you later. <laughs>
manly chest.